Welcome to the Brand Rounds Podcast, where we help prescribe a brand prescription to help surgeons grow their business of healthcare, and we help medical sales distributors establish financial freedom by becoming problem solvers and practice builders instead of sellers of product. I could not possibly generate interesting and compelling content that helps to drive brand awareness and attract more ideal clients. I don't have that skill set. I'm not a journalist. Well, you're going to learn today from my guest, Melanie Diesel. She's the author of the Content Fuel Framework, and she's written a book that gives us format and focus ideas on how to generate unlimited story ideas. So put to rest the argument that you don't have a framework or a skill set to develop stories that make people want to listen. So stay tuned for this podcast with Melanie Diesel. All right, Melly, for the context of this podcast, for those who may not know your story and how it led you to write the book, The Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas, give us a little backdrop on what brought you to where you are today. Now, I have been a storyteller, I like to say, since since I was a small child. You know, I was the kind of kid who would go off to a corner with some paper and crayons and, and stickers and, and make books. That was like an activity that I used to do as a kid. So that I've always... was me, Melanie, except that, <laughs> that was my mom putting me into timeout. So I think there's, there's a difference there, right? Oh, no. So, so my hobby was your punishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I've always known the power of storytelling and, and understood the way that we can convey information and, 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 you know, change people's minds and touch their hearts by sharing stories. And so I studied journalism because I really envisioned that that was the best way for me to help others to, you know, study situations, to understand current events, and then convey that information to others so that they can, you know, make better decisions themselves, be more informed. And I found that, you know, there weren't a ton of jobs in journalism at the time when I was going into it. You know, we were in the midst of digitizing newsrooms across the country. There were massive layoffs, as, as there have unfortunately continued to be in the media space. So I had all these skills that I was intending to use as a journalist, understanding how to find stories, how to interview sources, how to convey, you know, complex subjects very simply to an audience and I had nowhere to put them to use. And that's how I found myself working my way to the marketing side of things. So I realized that many of us on, 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 in all kinds of industries, you know, we have become marketers without perhaps ever having been trained to do that. You know, we find ourselves having to market ourselves for our business, you know, a personal brand. If you're building thought leadership as an expert in your field, all of that, you know, most of us didn't get any training on that. And so I realized how valuable it could be and how much value I could bring by taking what I learned in the journalism world and really teaching that to some of the marketers, creators, experts, and thought leaders who needed that same kind of, of tactics. And, and that's really what the book is born from, is me trying to figure out 
what's going on inside my head, what feels like second nature to me when it comes to coming up with content ideas, and how can I really put a system to it so that other people are able to take it and, and take action on it themselves. Yeah, you did a great job with that. The book was so helpful in, we're going to talk through the framework that you developed here, but it was so helpful because I think that anyone who reads the book will walk away with saying, hey, I don't have to be a journalism major. I don't have to be a journalist to understand how to tell better stories. So definitely kudos for that. So how would you describe your writing process? So my writing process, I think, may be a little bit different than, than a lot of others. So I, I have been working with the framework that's in the book for several years. You know, I've been teaching it in workshops. I've been doing it, you know, it's coaching and consulting with my small business clients, with my individual clients. And so the content of the book was really already in my head. All I needed to do was document it. Um, so that put me in the unique position of being able to have a much shorter writing schedule than I think a lot of others, particularly with the first book. This was, this was my first book. Um, but I managed to write this book in a little under three months thereabouts. Wow. Um, but again, you know, it was, it was well-structured already. The, there were already sections. There was already clear chapter markers. I already had working definitions of each of those sections. So it, it was really, again, just documenting what I already had in my head. Um, I like to approach things in a very methodical way. If it's not you know, totally obvious by the fact that I wrote a book about a system. Uh, mm -hmm. So for me, I made a spreadsheet and I broke down, you know, lines for, uh, for every single chapter section. Within each chapter, I included other sections. There needed to be definitions. There needed to be a certain number of examples. I wanted those examples to be from totally different fields, industries, sectors, so that it felt applicable to everyone. So by breaking it down into, into a spreadsheet, it became almost like a, a fancy checklist for me to work my way through it bit by bit. Yeah, I like that. And I, I'm going to make an assumption, and that is that you've been a patient in your lifetime. <laughs> is that an accurate assumption? Yes, it is. Awesome. I thought it would be. So <laughs> I just want you to put yourself in the position of being a patient and having been treated by doctors before. And we're going to have tons of doctors listening to us right now. So as someone who understands storytelling, what are you thinking when you experience the typical healthcare professional interaction? I mean, I think... I think anyone who is a, a profession in any sort of field, you have your experience of the world as it pertains to that profession ruined a little bit. You know, it's, it must be tough for filmmakers to watch movies and, and things like that. And for me, my equivalent is I'm analyzing every piece of content and communication I receive from, from all the brands, and including my healthcare providers, that, that I interact with. And one of the challenges I find is a lot of the information we get from, from healthcare providers, at least on the patient side, what I've experienced is a lot of them feel very separated from our, our personal care, right? We get sort of mass messages that oftentimes aren't applicable to us, that when it seems like making sure we're only getting relevant messaging should be very easy. So I'll give you an example. I work with a, you know, my GP's office has several different departments that that's, are more specialized. Now, I receive all the information, all the email blasts uh, from each of those other departments, including their geriatric medicine, which I am not currently being served by. You know, uh, the, the pediatric, you know, we do have a, a daughter, so those work out to be relevant for us in most cases. But every single department, whether we are being serviced by that department or not, we're receiving all those communications. And that can create 
somewhat of a confusing experience as a patient when you're not sure which calls to actions apply to you. You're getting mixed messages, perhaps, because the recommendations differ based on those different segments of your audience. So I think that's a, a really common one is, is like a lack of personalization that can sometimes be confusing for patients. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, our listeners, they love and have passed organic chemistry because, you know, that's the discriminator. If you pass organic chemistry, you're on your way to becoming a doctor. Or if you pass mechanical engineering, congratulations, you can make it in the medical device world. So that's our audience. And so when I read your book and I saw the focus and format approach, I thought, oh, our doctors, whether that's a PhD type or an MD type, they're going to love this approach. I think it's simple and it's helpful. So unpack for us briefly the focus and format approach. Absolutely. So the the focus and format approach in the book is, again, pulled out from trying to figure out what's happening inside my head when I'm able to come up with content ideas quickly, you know, in a in a talk setting, in a consulting, coaching setting. Uh, that's always been sort of a, a superpower of mine. So I had to really think, what is happening inside my head? What What neurons are firing in what order to kind of create these ideas seemingly out of thin air? And what I was able to determine is I was essentially asking myself two questions. What is this content about? What's the focus of this content? And then what is the best way to bring it to life? What's the format of this content? And so it was really those two questions that I was asking myself in some way, shape, or form. And so what we've done with the Content Fuel Framework, and as it's detailed in the book, is provide a list of 10 common focuses, 10 common approaches or lenses through which you might tell a story, and 10 common formats, you know, ways in which you could bring those stories to life. So by providing information about how each of those can be used strategically to communicate with your audience, to tell your story, we give you a 10 by 10 matrix of 100 possible intersections. When you consider those different focuses and those different formats, you have so many ready-made combinations and options that can kind of inspire you to think in new ways. So rather than sitting down and saying, what are we going to post on our blog today? Or what are we going to you know, post in the employee internet to keep them informed about our new policies? You, know, you don't have to have that total blank of where do we even begin, you can ask, well, could we tell this story through the lens of history? What can we do to teach a process to our audience? Could we share data about a particular topic? By, by running through those focuses, you give yourself a place to start. And then by running through the formats, things like writing, audio, live video, quiz, timeline, you're giving yourself totally different ways in which you could bring those various stories to life. So it helps you, it helps you keep things fresh, but it really is truly simple. Every piece of content you create or consume is a focus and it is a format. It has one of each. And so if you can choose one of each, a focus and a format, you're already most of the way there to coming up with a content idea that's going to help you communicate your message to your audience. We have a doctor who will be listening to us right now, and they're probably thinking, you know, I need a dedicated person to come up with my content and ideas. What is it that you can say that I that either might debunk this notion or maybe even say, yeah, you do? <laughs> well, if you need a dedicated person because you would like to outsource this, that it's, it's not the kind of thing that is, is worthy of your time, right? We're all busy professionals. We've all got a lot on our plates then I think that could be a good idea. If it's within your means and you're able to get an expert in to take it off your plate, why not? 
If you think you need to hire someone else, a dedicated person, because you aren't qualified or aren't skilled enough or aren't creative enough, then that's where I want to stop you. You know, I think so many of us have been fed some sort of lie, and I'm guessing your audience is not partial to the I'm not good at math or I'm not good at science, right? They, they, know, they know they are. Um, but the flip side is many folks who excel in those areas have been sort of sold this lie that, well, I'm not a creative type. I'm not artistic, right? I'm, I'm, more, I'm more one brain than the other. I'm more, you know, this type of thinker. And I think the ma- truth of the matter is, even those of you who excel in math and science, the reason you do is because there are systems and frameworks and formulas and predictable rules, right? And I think in many cases, creativity can work in the same way. If you have a system, if you have a way to come up with these ideas, a system of prompts, a process to go through, it becomes much easier to activate that on the spot rather than just trying to, without any system at all, come up with ideas at the drop of a hat. You know, we have several neurosurgery clients, literally brain surgeons, and pre-COVID, you know, I'd go out to dinner and invariably, you know, somebody would ask the question, what do you do? I just want to let you know, note to self, Melanie, if they ask the neurosurgeon first, what is it that you do? And he or she throws out the the brain surgeon, Mm -hmm. it's time to go to the bathroom. Just, (laughs) Just do it. Go to the bathroom because you can't compete with that. So that ties into my question, which is, does a big ego help or hurt us when thinking about sharing great content? I think it can serve in either direction. I think if you have a big ego that is backed up by a massive knowledge base, that you are truly a renowned expert in your field, then that gives you a true advantage in terms of the sheer breadth of information that you're able to share with your audience. So when you sit down to come up with a podcast or write a blog or or share your thoughts on social media, it's going to be much easier for you. You're drawing from a very deep well, right? And sometimes having the confidence to be able to try something like that that you haven't done before, sometimes you need a little ego boost to, to jump on your first live video or publish your first article, right? So sometimes it can help. I think where it can be a drawback is if it keeps you from truly looking at what's working for your audience and what's not, and if your ego kind of gets in the way of putting forth the best content for your audience in the right place at the right time. By that, I mean, if you happen to be a neurosurgeon who loves the sound of your own voice and you decide my voice is, is that of a thousand angels. And so I've decided we're going to do a podcast so everyone can hear my booming voice as we talk about these things. And you're not looking at the data, which says our audience isn't listening to the podcast. They're not downloading. We're not getting the kind of response we wanted. If your ego won't let you stomach that, and pivot to a video series or a blog post, you know, every week instead where you can get the the data and the response and engagement that you're hoping for, then your ego is going to keep you from having the kind of content success that you should. Yeah, I really value that answer because oftentimes we will have surgeons approach us and in their own mind, they've chosen a format. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite common in that they'll say like, hey, we want to have you guys help us in blogging or podcasting or social media. And your book did a great job of kind of going through the, a, a broader perspective of focus beats format and even language that allows our listing audience to strip the medical jargon and to speak to humans with anxieties who happen to be patients. So I really appreciate that about your book. 
You know, you talk about the series Serial, which I watched. It was great. And, and it was in the book, you talk about why it was such a phenomenon. What can anyone take from this occurrence? I mean, first of all, tell people a little bit about Serial for the one person listening who did not watch Serial. And then talk about, hey, this is something that anyone listening to us can understand and apply. So for those of you who maybe don't remember, my guess is you probably heard about it and you've just made space in your brain for other things in the time since. But Serial was a sequential podcast series that was done over the course of a season. And it dug into a a murder case from from Baltimore, Maryland from from several years back. And it talked about an individual who had been charged with that murder. And there were some questions about whether or not he truly should have been, right? There's questions of his innocence that remain. And so one of the things that worked so amazingly about this podcast, and it it sort of took the world by storm. This was around 2013, 2014. And Mm -hmm. podcasts really took off because this showed the power of a podcast as sort of a sequential piece of programming, you know, the idea that a story could unfold week after week after week, and people would tune back in, that it wasn't necessarily just an interview show, but that you could have a single story unfolding over the course of an entire season, you know, several weeks to months. It was so unique. The timing was so unique. It really was, and it, it, it kind of opened our eyes to the incredible power of podcasts at a time when they probably weren't, <laughs> they were nowhere near as big as they are now. And one of the things that was so incredible about that series is not only was it some of the best storytelling, right, if you just, in terms of the pacing and the timing and, you know, the mix of different audio footage, you know, really kind of transported you, you, you felt so absorbed in the story. But the other thing that was incredible is they really embraced all kinds of different content formats. So, you know, one of the things you'd find and and part of the reason people got so obsessed is each week when they launched an episode and they were referencing different parts of, of evidence or different places where things were taking place, you could go to a dedicated website that was associated with that episode and you could zoom in on the maps and see the places they were talking about. You could, you know, see the photos of particular sites that they were describing. You could look at the maps. You could look at the transcripts of various calls. They had every possible content format so that you were seeing every part of that case, all the supporting content and your ability to really dig in and and feel like you were a detective, you were part of the story was was really part of the power and and what made it so shareable and what made it so engaging is you were really truly immersed because you were given so many different pieces of content, different ways you could have a door into that story. Yeah, it, you described that perfectly. It was so interesting. I, I found myself, like you mentioned, almost being part of the investigative process. And that was more unique than, you know, a traditional podcast. And that was great. And why they chose audio as a format, brilliant. So in the book, you, you teach us to choose focus before format. Why, why is that important? So I think as we talked about earlier, oftentimes our instinct is to start with a format when we're having our brainstorms. And the reason for that is not because it's a better place to start, but because we ha- we are more familiar with the language we use around formats than around focuses. So it's very easy for us to say, hey, let's start a... a- a podcast, right? Or let's start a video series. We have shared terms for that. 
if I wanted to describe to you what Serial was about, like I just did, it required a lot more than one word, just podcast, right? That the story itself was investigative and crime and history about this person. There was a lot of, a lot of to unpack there. So it's often easier to think we should start with format. What happens yeah. when we do that is we sort of force ourselves to present a story in the format that may not be best for it. So, you know, you think of something like Serial, which we just talked about. If, you know, whoever was in charge had said, look, this has to be a 500-word blog post uh, before they started digging into it, I mean, man, imagine all the, all the various aspects that would have been left out. The, the depth of that story would have been entirely missing because they tried to tell such a huge audio-based story in the form of a 500-word blog post. And so we don't want to do the same thing to our stories. Let's find those stories first. Let's see what they should be about. Let's understand the message we want to share. And then we ask ourselves, what's the best way to bring this story to life for our audience? So why does content focused on people work so well? And as part of your response, I'd be curious, beyond the obvious, why is it that content focused on people works so well? So, you know, People is the first focus that we talk about in the book because, as you said, it, it's the most relatable. I think it's the easiest for most of us to start with uh, because we can see the people involved in a story, right? It, it becomes very easy to say, okay, who are the people involved in the story we're trying to tell? Can we talk to them? Can we make content about them? So it's a really good place to start. It's generally easy to figure out what those possible stories might be for any particular topic you're trying to create content about. Part of the reason that this content does so well is because it's incredibly relatable. So, you know, when we, when we share stories throughout our life, you talk, you know, you've talked throughout our conversation about the members of your audience and their experiences. You're telling me about those people, right? You're not telling me about the data. You're not assigning them numbers of how many downloads or which number listener they are. You're telling me about their life, their experience, their jobs, their challenges, right? It's about the people. And that makes everything we do, every piece of content we share so much more relatable for our audience, for our patients and our, our potential patients, for any recruiting type content we're creating. We need to see ourselves in that content to feel like it's relevant to us. And so if I see photos of people who look like me, who are having experiences that I have had, who reflect back my position in life or my situation, it becomes so much more clear to me that that content is meant to apply to someone like me. And so if we put our people in our stories, we it's each time is an invitation. It's an open handshake to say, come, this content is for you. It's for someone just like you. So that people-focused content is, is just some of the most relatable content we can possibly create. That makes sense, Melanie. It's implied that surgeons and medical distributors and medical innovators are intelligent. You know, when I was going through the basics-focused content portion, I thought, wow, how is that applicable to helping surgeons that are listening to us right now in terms of attracting more patients or being able to communicate in a better way with patients? So my guess, even from the conversation we had earlier where you said, once they start talking, it's time to, to excuse yourself and, and get away from that conversation, there is sort of an an implicit understanding that a lot of the conversations we're having in these incredibly technical fields is over the head of the average consumer, of the average patient, right? As informed and, and motivated as our patients may be to, to learn more about their options, 
you know, they don't have the experience we have. And so in many cases, it's very important that we have content for them of some form that's at an introductory level, because it's always possible that this is the first they're hearing of a particular condition, a particular experience, a procedure, a medication. I mean, there's so many things that they will be exposed to, often for the first time, we need to acknowledge that they are not at the advanced level that someone on our team might be or, or us ourselves. Uh, I actually have firsthand experience with this. So uh, back in 2014, my father, you know, had uh, an abnormal growth uh, on his brain and, and did need to have, he had a series of, of brain surgeries over the course of a week. And I remember our surgeon was wonderful. You know, he was very patient with us, explained all the options, all the things we can expect as a family. Um, but at one point, my family was having trouble processing because we had had a lot of conversations like that in a very short span of time with many different people and professionals, right? So we were feeling a little overwhelmed. So I asked the doctor to sit with me for a moment and draw out a flowchart that showed, okay, so first you're going to do this procedure, right? Okay, and then there's one of two outcomes here, right? So if it's A, then these are the options. If it's B, these are the options. And, and among those, these are the next steps. So we sort of drew out this very simple flowchart. Now, I'm sure he didn't have to think for but a second to understand all those different outcomes, all the different conditionals, all the different implications of those outcomes. But for us, this was a lot to process. And so having a very basic piece, you know, it wasn't trying to teach us everything there was to know about all the outcomes, just to say, here are some steps that are coming up. Here are some of the key words you're going to hear us say at each of these various points. And here's the what ifs for each of these outcomes uh, as we, you know, wait for testing and as we, as we go through the procedures. And what's interesting is, you know, my father, you know, we're, we're very blessed. He's, he's now healthy. Everything is great. Um, but even he remembers that he says, I remember when you drew out that flowchart, it was really helpful to kind of put mm. all that big information into perspective because it was overwhelming to, to be asked to understand and process all of this at once. So that kind of basic information, even if it seems so, so elementary, you know, your patients, their families, their support teams oftentimes are feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling in over their head. And so to be the best you know, the best professionals that we can to give them the best quality of care, sometimes we need to give some care for their understanding and knowledge, uh, as well as their, their physical health. Yeah, thank you for sharing that personal and, and applicable lesson. And I'm so glad that your father is, is doing great. That's, that's super. Yeah, very you know, I got to tell you that my favorite component of the book, and you're going to get a chuckle out of this, is process. Process <laughs> is like the Brussels sprouts for me. Let me explain that briefly. I was like 42 years old, Melanie, and I had Brussels sprouts uh, cooked a certain way for the first time. And I, everybody that I saw, I was like, hey, do you guys know that Brussels sprouts don't suck? They're awesome. <laughs> it was like an awakening for me. And the reason why it's applicable to process is that one of the things that our agency has learned over time is that patients appreciate process and understanding of what they can expect next. And we developed years ago our own process that we call brand RX process. It's the same guideline for our physicians that we work with, which is, all right, doctor, here's a step-by-step -step process that you can hold us accountable, that you can have an understanding of, of where you are in the sequence of us helping you. And that was so helpful. So when I saw that in your book, I thought it was great. So I would ask you, 
how might a healthcare professional develop a process-focused content system to help more patients? Absolutely. I think this is one of the easiest things, actually, hopefully, for our, our healthcare professionals to, to embrace. When we think about process, I think it's easy for us to think only about physical processes, you know, steps that we're going to take to do something. Oftentimes, those steps can be more internal. It's maybe steps to making a decision or choosing from several different options. You know, one of the easiest ways for you to bring long-term and consistent value to your audience is to help them achieve something. And so anything you can do that helps them with a process they are about to embark on or or educates them about that process, it's going to really lock in the fact that you are incredibly valuable throughout that process. So this might be something simple. You know what? It could truthfully be that uh, exact flowchart that I was just talking about. about. These are the steps that typically happen, right? So first, you'll have this kind of test. From that test, we'll learn the following information. Based on what we learn, we'll do these other tests. Here's what you expect when you go in for that test. You know, those kinds of, of flowchart, you know, it's really showing you the process. How do, we, how do we go through the process of examination and diagnosis, you know? And so those, uh, those kinds of things can, can be incredibly helpful, uh, even if they seem so simple. Uh, but there are other types of processes as well. It could be something simple like, Uh, how to choose the right doctor for you, right? How to choose the right facility. What if you're choosing between two different procedures or two different options? How do you know which might be the best fit? It could be that you're providing them some sort of help, helpful uh, content for how to speak to their insurance company about the processes that you're going to be doing together or how to, you know, talk to their boss about needing time off. You know, there's, there's all kinds of content that, that, you can help your audience go through those processes. And one of the easiest ways to figure out what they need help with is to, to keep track of the questions that they are asking. It's a really good signal to you that these are the things your audience needs help learning about. These are the challenges that they're facing. And if you can create content that answers those, not only does it provide value to potential clients and potential audience who maybe don't get a chance to ask you that in person, but it also could save you time. Imagine being able to share a resource on your site or a printed resource with your, your, you know, your, your patients rather than having to explain the same thing so, so many times. You know, it, may, it may be beneficial for them and for you. Yes, yeah, super important. I'm glad you picked up on that about the ability to take a process and use it as something that can replicate or reproduce the most frequently asked questions or concerns and to be able to do that. So I love that. Now, as an author, did you have a favorite part or maybe even a least favorite part of writing the book? You know, one of the things I really loved about writing the book is it really did force me to grapple with how I identified as a writer. You know, I've been a writer and a storyteller my whole life. I was in journalism. You know, I, I prided myself always on my ability to, to write well, to write easily. And a book is a massive, massive undertaking. And it, it was bigger than any project I had ever done by magnitudes. And so I, as, as scary and difficult as it was, I really liked that it was sort of a, it was sort of a mission for me to say, ah, oh, yeah, I can do it. You know, I can, I can take on this, this massive project. I, I think it might be similar to a runner who does their first marathon or something. There's, there's something about proving to yourself that you can do something bigger than you've ever done before that, that I really enjoyed. That was really rewarding for me. Um, what I did not love, being t- totally honest, is uh, I wrote this book 
while I was very, very pregnant in the middle of the <laughs> summer. And uh, there were some days where I, ugh, I, I, there was nothing I wanted to do less than sit down at that desk and, and <laughs> pump out some more pages. Uh, I got to be honest. It was tough, but it did give me a very pressing deadline and helped me stay on target and, and get everything done. I do want to associate that you use the words pump out. Yeah. Um, with being pregnant. I just want to link that together <laughs> in case you just failed to, to miss that. So that's awesome. <laughs> you know, when I interview or speak with authors, you know, I had the pleasure, just a really great gentleman, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, one of my favorite books. I had the opportunity to interview him, and he talked in a similar way about the process of cranking out his first book and then other books. And as a father, he even equated that to parenting um, and, and how that was, was like. Is there something about the book now that it's published and the ink is dry <laughs> that you would go back and say, you know, I may have overlooked something? Well, there's definitely one typo in the book that I found naturally the day after the book launch. So if anyone finds that, please reach out, send me an email. I would love to know. No one has done it yet, but it's in there. I promise you it will, it will haunt me (laughs) (laughs) until the next printing anyway. Um, So I definitely would have fixed that. Um, As far as overlooked, one of the things that the, the feedback that I got from people was that the, the system made sense and they were really excited to use it but some people needed a bit more hand-holding. They wanted a little bit more help in how to turn it into action for them. And so what we ended up doing is we've actually created a companion workbook that you know walks people through prompts that are coordinated to every single chapter. So it really asks you the questions instead of you having to ask them of yourself. You know, it says, what are the, you know, name five people of this particular type that you might write a profile about. You know, it really gets down to the nitty gritty to help you come up with ideas for yourself. Um, I think had we known the demand for that, in the earlier stages, we maybe would have included a little bit more of those kinds of prompts in the book. Now, we do end every single chapter with questions to consider, uh, and it's fairly robust, but I do think we probably would have put even more in there had we known uh, that people would want to take that next step and and get a little bit more help. Yeah. Oh, I say you just go to Thinkific. We work with Thinkific and and developing online courses for our doctors. I say you just throw up that online course and we'll all pay for it because it'll be great. Um, So my next question is, do you have a new book plan for us? This is a really good question. So I, believe it or not, I actually started writing a different book um, before the Content Fuel Framework came to be. I started writing a much more, uh, a much more theoretical book that, that was less tactical in nature. And what I found is, I really realized that my audience needed this book that I did write first. So mm-hmm. my guess is if I, if I get the time to jump back in amidst all this change we're all experiencing, I will probably go back to that first idea and, and try to bring that to life. Um, but I do think I've, I've also really been toying with the idea of, of doing a textbook on this, um, on this idea of content marketing and, and related topics because I, having done course development for a course in content marketing at the, at the master's level, there is no textbook out there currently. And that makes teaching this stuff to the next generation of marketers, storytellers, and, and thought leaders really challenging. And so I think that 
that might be a fun project for me. So if anyone, anyone is looking for a textbook like that, definitely let me know. I've been thinking a lot about how helpful that might be for, you know, whoever comes after us to, to tell their stories. Oh, yeah, I think that'll be really, really helpful. My final question is, you're a New Yorker. We know that at the time of this recording that we're starting to see a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it makes sense to put a timestamp that, you know, we're, we're still seeing COVID-19 or experiencing it, and, but there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. I know firsthand the resiliency of New Yorkers. I was a guy who was on a plane getting ready to fly into New York City when they canceled all flights during 9-11. And then a good friend and I, we made sure that we were on the first available flight from San Diego to New York City so that we could fly into the city and see firsthand just how New Yorkers are, I mean, they're tough to keep down. What's been your observation, your experience? Can you share with us what it was like compared to what you're seeing now and, and how you might be hopeful? Yeah, I, you know, for me, my husband and I, we live just across the river in Jersey City. So we're, you know, we can see New York, but we're not in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. What I can tell you is here in Jersey City, we've actually been following just about every guideline, rule, you know, curfew, et cetera, from New York because the cities are so interconnected. You know, we have the same subway system, the same ferry system. We're, we're, we're very, very close in terms of, of overflow of people from one to the other. I have not in the, I guess, where we are now, last three and a half or so months, uh, not made a single trip into the city. And that's very, very unusual for us. You know, that's where my dentist is. You know, we, that's where, where a lot of, you know, we're so mm-hmm. close. So much of, of our lives are there. And I think it has forced a lot of people in this area to question living the way we do. Uh, and I say that you know, New York has the reputation. We live in very, very tiny apartments uh, with very nonsensical arrangements and, and things like that. Uh, and we pay an astronomical amount to do that. And so I think the more that we have all been trapped at home in these tiny spaces, um, and we're not getting any of the, the convenience that we would normally travel to, I'm seeing so many people start to question the way we live in cities and, and whether there are other options or ways we can change to, to make it a little bit more humane. Because I think being trapped inside these tiny shoeboxes with so many people that are just, you know, feet away from you, but you can't connect with them, you can't talk to them, it has a very different feeling than being a part of a bustling, lively city where there's endless things to do. You know, it, it has a very different feeling. And so I think I... I I think New York will come back, but I think it will come back in a, in a different way. I think there's going to be some longer-term changes as people realize that we've learned a lot about ourselves and our city in this time we've spent apart from each other and our city. Yeah, I think that's well said. We have several New York City clients, and I think everybody's moving to Towns River, New Jersey tomorrow. I, I really believe that. I mean, for the reasons that you mentioned, New York City is such a cosmopolitan community and currently, and it won't be this way forever, you know, it's kept people indoors, so to speak, and, and not to be a part of that melting pot of great culture, et cetera. And for the cost of living reasons that you mentioned, I have heard several people who live in the city say, 
man, Towns River, New Jersey is looking better and better. And then, you know, just commute into work or commute in and commute into the cultural advantages of the city. And um, that has been a theme that I didn't anticipate going into this, which is people are reconsidering the where they live. And I think in this day and age where jobs are repurposing into more of a virtual mindset, I think that there are people that are like, hey, why not go to Billings, Montana? We've always thought about it. We're going to get 20 acres. It costs less than, you know, our place in Jersey City. And um, so it is an interesting discussion that is taking place right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, it forces you to to really think about what it is that you want out of life. You know, I think we've all had so much time in isolation. You really start to, to think about what's important. I just bought a minivan. That lets you know what crazy state of mind I'm in. <laughs> I'm a hustling, bustling 55-year-old. I have no business buying a minivan. All of our kids were empty nesters. So, Melanie, I, I need counseling on this one because even my <laughs> wife was like, is this like a reverse midlife crisis? We just bought an elite minivan instead of some of the other cars <laughs> that we've had. Which, thank you. I tried to throw that out to Sweet Sandy, but she's not quite there yet. So I'm working on that. But hey, Melanie, really appreciate your time. Just appreciate the approach and the thoughtfulness that you took to the book. Again, it was a book that after I read... I thought, wow, it has just such practical application for people in the healthcare field that are stumbling or perhaps even just not getting started with this concept of how do I share memorable stories or information in a way that helps their patients or for medical distributorships, helps doctors understand how they are differentiated, how it adds value. And ultimately how that has a value and business proposition to it. So it was just such a great book. When, when I saw, you know, focus and format on an X, Y axis, I'm like, oh man, Melanie is going to really appeal to our audience. So thank you again for your time. Well, thanks for letting me come and share my story. I, I would love to hear from those of you who maybe try this approach and, and see how it works for you. It's been the greatest reward of my life, I think, professionally to hear from folks who are, are finding new creative bits within them. You know, they're coming out with stories when they, they never thought that that was something they could do. So I would absolutely love to hear your stories of, of transformation and, and see all the stories that you go out there and tell. Yeah, you'll hear from our folks. And in the show notes, if you're listening to me now, we'll have all of Melanie's contact information where you can have access to the book, where you can have access to the workbook that Melanie was talking about, and any future updates we'll keep updated in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs>